So I was driving down a main street in Wichita, I will not tell you which one, um, and the speed limit was 45 miles an hour. And I was doing 45-ish, and uh, I was being pretty good. I was behaving myself all right. But I had some place I needed to be, and I was actually in a little bit of a hurry. And I ended up, and you know, it always works this way. When you're in a hurry, that's when you're going to get behind somebody who's going much slower than you. And I ended up behind somebody doing 30, 30 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone. Have you ever heard of anything so ludicrous, right? It's not just a few miles. We're talking about a 15-mile difference. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to maintain some level of spirituality as a pastor. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bask in the joy of my salvation and pray, pray a prayer of grace and peace over this person. Dear Lord, I'm going to praise you in this storm. They're going 30 miles an hour, and I really need to be going 45. Um, but there came a point in time where my aggravation eclipsed my spirituality. Have you ever had that moment? All right. And I crossed the line. I knew I had to do something about this egregious problem facing me. This is a first world problem. And I, uh, I knew I needed to get around this person. And fortunately for me, this was a two-lane two road. It was a passing zone. I legally had every right in the world to pass this person and go on about my day, which is what I decided to do. And if that's all I had decided to do, that would have been just fine. <laughs> but I wanted to help this person. <laughs> After all, I'm a teacher. This is what I do. And I wanted to teach them that going 30 in a 45 is probably not the best thing, you know. So I, I drive a little sporty red thing with a stick shift, and I decided that I was going to put it in an unnecessarily low gear as I passed because I wanted my car to make a lot of noise. I wanted it to go, you know, as I, as I went around. And I waited until I got by a speed limit sign. Because I thought, this is the best of all worlds. Because I'm going to be passing really loudly. This person's going to look up from searching for their cell phone or whatever it is they're obviously doing. And they're going to see that it's 45 miles an hour. And they're going to feel like, hey, I should never do this again. And we all win. Right? <laughs> so I crank it. And I'm, I'm passing this. I wasn't speeding. You don't have to speed to get around somebody going 30 and a 45. And as I'm passing this vehicle. I look over to see who it is that I'm passing because actually I wanted to see what it was they were doing that was making them drive that slow. And as I looked over, I see a new spring decal <laughs> on the back window. And I think, uh-oh. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I pass quickly and, and, I, and, and then let me just tell you what happens whenever you do this. Whenever you pass somebody like that, Murphy's Law is that inevitably, 15 seconds later, you're going to be at a stoplight right next to the person that you just passed. And I'm sitting there trying not to make eye contact. Lord, please don't let them see that it's me. I don't even want to know who it is. And if you're here this week, I'm sorry. But I realized as I was sitting there, I thought, how silly, how silly these little things are that push me across the line. You know, I get aggravated, I get annoyed, I get frustrated. And, I, and I, I do things that 
aren't within what I would like to believe are my character. I would like to believe I'm a laid-back person, and a lot of the time I am. I'd like to believe that I'm, you know, kind of easygoing, and that I'm forgiving, and that I'm gracious, and that I'm patient, and that I have all those virtues in vast supply, but sometimes I prove to myself that I do not. Sometimes I prove to myself that my boat is a little more rockable than I would like it to be. Maybe you know someone in your life who has a very rockable boat, and when you see them coming, you put on the kid gloves, or, or you begin to feel like you have to walk on eggshells, because you know this person has a very rockable boat, and it does not take much to set them off. But as I sat there at that stoplight, desperately trying not to make eye contact, I thought to myself, I'm pretty rockable myself. It's pretty easy for me to to get pushed into behaving badly. And I had to confront the fact that there are two parts of me. I would like to believe that good Jonathan, the good me, is, is the real me. I'd like to believe this is, this is the me that is there all the time. This is the moral Jonathan, the Jonathan with a big conscience, the Jonathan who's kind and gracious and thinks things through and has the capacity to adjust to things beyond his control. But there is also a bad Jonathan. I don't like to think about him much. I certainly don't like to talk about him much, but this is the Jonathan that makes mistakes, that has misdirected anger, that, that gets selfish and self-centered, and also that tends to, from, from time to time, be rigid. I'm sure I'm the only one like that in this room, but sometimes I get to the point where I really feel like I have the best idea of how the world should work, and if everybody would just get with my program, <laughs> it'd be a much better place to live. You know? I don't know if maybe you've ever felt that way before. And that's bad, Jonathan. I don't like being that guy. I don't like getting pushed across the line. But it happens. And we said that this series is about how to make your boat less rockable. And this talk, we said, is going to be called, What's Your R Factor? And your R Factor is how much you can take, how much you can absorb, how much stress you can deal with, how much of a personal burden you can carry before you get pushed from good you to bad you. It's how much can you take before it flips, and you become the person that you don't want to be, and, and you behave in ways that are not consistent with what you want to believe about yourself, and that's what we're going to be talking about, because I don't know about you, I would like to move the needle just a little bit. I would like in my life to, to, to be able to spend more time on this side, because I find that even though I'm not over here a, a whole lot, that I spend more time over here than I want to. I would like to move the needle. Now, I know it's not going to be like a light switch, Right? And it won't be for you either. It's not like this series is going to do this where you're high strung in this area today and tomorrow you're just going to be floating on a cloud your family's going to wonder if you're medicated. <laughs> right? We're talking about an incremental change. We want to just move the needle in a positive way so that you can deal with more. And just as we're getting started, let me ask you the question, how much can you take? Can you take a, a financial surprise? Right? Can, 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 you, can you take one of those months where you have a little month left over at the end of the money instead of money left over at the end of the month? Right? Or, 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 or some expense that you didn't count on popping up. How about a defiant or badly behaving child? Does that have the capacity to push you from good you to bad you? What about a spouse who's disagreeing with you or who's mad at you? Could that push you across the line? Or a coworker who tells a lie about you? Or how about let's do this, just so that we can get really real with each other right now, okay? Let's scale it back even farther. Let's scale it back to some little stuff, okay? Can you handle the Coke machine that eats your dollar <laughs> without crossing the line? Can you handle that 
checkout person at the grocery store who's new and who's learning and doesn't know how to check out your groceries and it takes you 20 minutes to check out and you've got somewhere to be. Can you take that without it crossing the line? Confession's good for the soul, so I'll go ahead and give you one of mine. Can you handle sitting down at the end of a long day to watch some television and not being able to find the remote control? (laughs) Oh, I just need to be honest before the Lord and say that I have a real problem with this. Uh, Because I'll have a long day at work. I'll have a lot of stress, a lot of things going on. I'll get home, I'll spend time with the family, hang out and do stuff. And then I get to that point where I want to sit in my aptly named Lazy Boy and, and turn on the television and watch a show, except there's four remote controls because we're that technologically advanced and one of them is always going to be MIA. I'm not going to be able to find one. And, and the sad thing is the one that was lost yesterday is now found, but now there's a new one that's lost. Now, Wendy will tell you, Jonathan's the one who loses him, and she'd be right. But that's not the, that's not the issue at, at, at bay here, right? The, the real problem is that something that small, a, a, a missing television remote, has the power to take good Jonathan and turn him into bad Jonathan, right? Good day, bad day. Good mood, bad mood, right? This is Jonathan preaching in front of you. This is me pulling a Mario Andretti around an unsuspecting New Springer. Right? So where's your R factor? What's the thing that pushes you over the line? And are you okay with where it is? Or would you like to see it move a little bit? So we're going to talk in these four weeks about some powerful things that will help you move the needle. By the way, next week, I hate to just you know, put out a commercial there for next week, but let me tell you, next week, if you've ever been called a pessimist or a realist or however you want to label it, and you've wanted to be an optimist, but you figured that that's just not in your DNA, come next week because we're going to talk about how you can be an optimist even if you've never been one before in your life. And if you are an optimist, we're going to talk about how you can stay that way. All right, sorry, that was just a little plug for next week. But this week, we're going to talk about what I believe is probably the most fundamental underlying aspect that affects your rockability factor or how rockable your boat is. And just as I even lay that groundwork, somebody in the room is saying, "Eh, Jonathan, you know, I appreciate you doing the work on this series and putting this together and so forth. And I'm sure it'll be helpful for someone, but uh, not for me, because I know that this is baked into my personality. Right? Whatever rockability level I have is just part of how God created me. It's part of my, my personality. And I took the test at work, and I found out that I'm a beaver or an otter or a lion or whatever it is. And, and I know that, that it's because of that that I tend to be rockable. So I appreciate your help, but this isn't really going to help me much at all. Well, before you sell out to that, before you convince yourself that whatever rockability you have in your life is just due to how you are, Let's take a look at a Bible character. And this, this Bible character, more than any other person in the New Testament, as far as I'm concerned, was a rockable person. He had a lot of volatility in his life. But we're going to watch a massive change take place. We're going to watch him move the needle in a huge way. And I think it's going to be helpful for us as we start this journey to make our boats less rockable. So we're talking about the Apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's probably the most memorable of Jesus' disciples. And rockable people tend to be memorable people, Right? They tend to be back and forth a lot. So, you know, they do make a big mark, and, and they're interesting to watch. Peter's very interesting to watch. Read the Gospels. He's a, he's a fun character. He's always doing something. Peter's always the first guy who's got to say something. He's always, you know, he tends to stick his foot in his mouth, but he always tends to be the first person out there with a brilliant idea that, of course, kind of isn't brilliant. But, 
he's just a very volatile person. And so, by the, by the way, Jesus actually set Peter up as kind of a leader among the disciples. And I don't think anybody would have pegged Peter for this job. Peter had been a fisherman. I mean, he was rough around the edges. He was certainly not a PR guy. He was not the kind of person that a, 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 a public figure would pick as a, as a you know, second, second in charge or second in command. And, and certainly the disciples weren't really structured that way. But still to put Peter in a position of leadership, I'm sure people were kind of looking at Jesus wondering, what are you thinking? Multiple times as he follows Jesus, Peter just says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing. He's corrected by Jesus multiple times. At one point, at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father speaks from heaven to correct Peter personally. I don't know, but to me, that would get my attention. But Peter's got a rockable personality. We saw this a, few, uh, a couple weeks ago in the series when we talked about Peter walking out to Jesus on the water. Remember, the disciples are in the boat. There's this huge storm that comes up. It's bigger than any of the storms the disciples have seen before, and they're totally panicked. And then they see Jesus walking to them on the water, and Peter calls out to him. This is in Matthew chapter 14. Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Now, this is a bright moment for Peter. This is, this is a good moment. He's got, a, he's got good intentions. He's got a good heart, just like you do. Peter wanted good things. He wanted good things in his relationship with God. He wanted good things in his relationship with his family. He, he, just like you, he wanted to accomplish good things. And so he says, hey, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to walk out to you in the water. And he actually gets out of the boat. That's good Peter. Good Peter. But then, after Jesus said, come, Peter went over the side of the boat, walked on the water toward Jesus. And when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted, and Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? That's bad, Peter. See, see rockability is not just about being angry or upset or acting out. Sometimes being pushed into the bad side for us is just about doing something that we don't want to do or failing to do something that we do want to do. Peter wanted to walk out to Jesus. He didn't want to get pulled underneath the waves and to fail to have faith. That was the last thing he wanted. But his rockability, his back and forth, cost him the opportunity to do what he wanted to do. I'm sure the other disciples said, well, that's good old Peter. I believe the other disciples probably just thought that was part of his personality. Ready, fire, aim, you know. First to open his mouth, first to make a fool of himself, and even the first in the room to get upset about things. There's a story in John where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. The primary mode of travel at the time was walking, and men would walk with open-faced sandals, and the roads were dusty and dirty. By the end of a full day of walking, their feet would smell pretty terrible, and they would need to be washed. And they would get ready to eat, and at that time, people didn't eat the way we do. They didn't sit around a table and look at each other. They would actually eat in a semi-reclined position, and they would eat with their hands. So they'd be sitting on kind of a semi-reclining sofa, and someone else's feet were very liable to be very close to your face at dinner time. So if they weren't properly washed, you could have a real odor problem on your hands. So this was just the way things worked. You'd go to dinner, and whoever was the least important slave in the house would be the person who would come and wash your feet before dinner. But there were a lot of cases where there were no servants in the house. And when that would happen, and this is a case, obviously the case what happened here, when there was no servant in the house, then whoever considered themselves to be the least important person in the room would wash the feet of the others. So I see the disciples are standing there. They got their hands in their pockets. They're looking around trying to figure out who's, who's going to wash feet, you know? Surely not Peter, James, and John. They're part of the dream team. 
they're the ones that Jesus takes on special trips and everything. You know, they, they got to, they, surely not them. I mean, it's one of the disciples with more syllables in their name, you know. We'll leave it to them. But while everybody's just looking around at each other, waiting for somebody to volunteer to be the least important, Jesus takes a towel and wraps it around his waist and a basin of water begins to wash the disciples' feet. And apparently, Jesus ran into a little bit of resistance when he got to Peter because Peter's like this. Jesus told the disciples, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but someday you will. And Peter, no, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. All right, that's what Peter says to Jesus. Which, by the way, that is what rockability sounds like. It's very polar. It's very one end or the other end, right? So it's not, it's not like, you know, well, I wish you would do this more. It's you never do this. Or it's not like, well, you do this a lot. It's you always do this. Or there's exaggeration. You do this 10,000 times worse than it should be. Or, you know, it's, it's very polar. It's very one end or the other end. And Peter says, you will never, ever wash my feet. To which Jesus says, well, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. So then Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. See what I'm saying? One minute, Peter says, you will never, ever wash my feet. The next minute, he says, then give me a bath. <laughs> that's what rockability looks like. And the other disciples going, that's Peter for you. Later on, Jesus is talking to the disciples about going to the cross. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of, of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Go back several chapters and you'll see Jesus asking Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter says, I believe you're the son of God. So we know that that's what Peter thinks. And yet Peter somehow is so rockable in this moment, he's so out of his mind that he takes Jesus aside and says, even though I have finite knowledge and finite understanding and finite wisdom and you're God and you have infinite all of those, I'm going to tell you that I think you're wrong and you should quit talking like that. It's rockability. Which, by the way, another thing that we tend to do when we get rockable, we tend to be 100% certain. Regardless of whatever it is that we think, we really think we've got it figured out. So Peter takes Jesus aside. He really thinks he's got it figured out. And he says, far be it for you, Lord, to go to the cross. But then everything turns nasty. In John chapter 18, the, the arrest warrant is signed and the soldiers come to take Jesus away. And now Peter has another moment of rockability because here's the high priest and, and all the soldiers and they've come to take Jesus away and, and Peter's got a sword on him. Now keep in mind, Peter is a fisherman, right? Not a, not a soldier. So he takes his sword out and I believe very firmly that his, his plan was to lob off the head of the high priest. The high priest was really the instigator of all this and I believe that Peter was gonna do his best chance, take his best shot at lobbing off the high priest's head. The only problem is when he was a little less than calibrated in his attempt. That's another thing about when we're rockable. We're not exactly well calibrated. And Peter's aim was off. And when he went loose with that sword, he ended up slicing off the ear, the right ear of the high priest's servant. And I've got a kind of crazy imagination and I've just always wondered what that moment had to be like, where all of a sudden, after a lot of noise, there's silence, and everybody's looking at the ground at the ear that's down there, and thinking, what was that? You know? The Bible tells us that Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on, the, on Malchus's head. 
which by the way, I so don't have time to go here. But when I, when I was in Bible school, I remember specifically some, some, even some teachers saying, now you know, Jonathan, about the time of the New Testament, we have other writings from other authors that talk about other Messiah figures who also did miracles and so forth. And, and let, me tell you, let me tell you something. That's a bunch of bunk. There is no other writings of somebody being able to take an ear that was completely detached off the ground and put it on somebody's head and have it reattach itself. That is a real miracle, and I'll put my eggs in that basket because I figure nobody's in competition with him on that. Right? So, sorry, hobby horse there for a second. So Peter had some rockable moments, but there's one that eclipses them all. There's one that just takes the cake, and that comes in Luke chapter 22, verse 54. They arrested Jesus, and they led him to the high priest's home. Peter followed at a distance, and the guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and, and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers, but Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And another gospel account tells us that he actually cursed. He used a swear word at this moment just to further distance himself from Jesus. Jesus is getting ready to die on the cross, and Peter has done everything possible that he can to make sure that he's distanced himself from Jesus. And in verse 61, the Bible says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. I'm wondering, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a moment where you messed up? It was a moment of rockability. You just, you just got pushed over the line. And you made a mistake. And it wasn't just a little mistake. It was a big mistake. And you know it has consequences. But more than that, you know that God was watching. You know that God built you with potential. And you think, I have not lived up to the potential that God has put within me. But maybe that's just the way I am. Maybe it's just my personality. Maybe I'm just a rockable kind of person and I'm never going to see it change. Those next couple of days had to be tough for Peter. Especially when somebody called him by his name. Because he remembered who gave him his name. It was Jesus. If you look at this in John chapter 1, 42, the Bible says Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. When it says Simon, it's talking about Peter. Simon was his given name. Simon is what his parents named him when he was born, Simon or Simeon. And, and so his brother Andrew brought him to Jesus, and looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter, which translated into English means rock. It means stable. It means steady. It means unmovable. It's like when we say that person's a rock, she's a rock, he's a rock. That's what Jesus said, you're going to be called a rock. And I can only imagine as Andrew, his brother, standing there next to him, having known Peter for his whole life and thinking, my gosh, this guy does not know him at all. Because if you were ever going to call somebody a rock, you sure wouldn't pick Peter to call him that. I mean, this guy is back and forth all the time. I mean, that's what you call irony, that you would call him that. Peter must have thought, man, I sure hope that he's right about that. I sure hope someday that's what I can be. I don't know if you 
can identify with kind of what I'm talking about, but do you ever read the Bible and see what God says your potential is and read the, the fruits of the Spirit and, and, and think about the joy and the peace and the long-suffering and the, the graciousness and the kindness and the love that God wants you to show and all this potential that God seems to be saying is within you and to think, I just don't think that syncs up with me, with how I was built, with, with my skill sets, with my personality. I just don't think I have those gears. I, I don't think I have that capacity. Maybe I have it a little bit, but I don't have it as much as God thinks I have it. Well, let's take a break here and think about something. In the scriptures, we can divide Peter's life into two segments really, really cleanly. One segment is, this is Peter previous to Jesus' death and resurrection. The other segment is what we have in the scriptures about Peter after Easter, after Jesus was resurrected. Would you like to see what Peter looks like after Easter? Because it's kind of cool. In Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost being talked about. In the day of Pentecost, the believers in Jesus Christ are gathered together in one place. It's a relatively small group of people. And the Bible says that there came this loud noise from heaven, and something that looked like flames descended on each of the believers that were there. And they began to be able to speak in other languages. And these are languages that were actually meant something. These were real languages. It would be like if, if somebody in this room who had never spoken French before began to speak French about Jesus, began to tell the gospel story in French, and somebody in this room who's never spoken Swahili before, begins to speak Swahili and, and talk about Jesus and talk about the gospel and somebody starts speaking in Spanish and somebody starts speaking in German and all these different languages at the same time so that people of other nations would be able to hear what it is that you're saying. That's exactly what happened. And the Bible says that at that time there were a lot of people from different nations who spoke different languages that were there in the city and they heard the noise in that place and so they began to crowd in to hear what was going on. And, and, and when they got there, some of them said, isn't this strange that all these Galileans are speaking such that we can understand what they're saying? But then there were also some people who just made fun of them, and they heard this cacophony of all these voices going against each other and said, these people are drunk. And so Peter, always the first to say something, gets up and starts an explanation. Well, his, his explanation of what was happening turned out to be one of the greatest sermons in all of Scripture. He just gets up, and I think really all he meant to do was to get up and say, these people aren't drunk. That's the first thing out of his mouth. He said, it's morning. And then he says, but this is what was written about in the scriptures. Go back to your scriptures and see if this isn't exactly what God said was going to happen. And he begins to unfold it bit by bit by bit by bit. Now keep in mind, this is the same Peter who just, just days earlier was frightened and afraid and scared because he was sitting around a fire with just a few people, but he was concerned of the, the, the mob mentality and, and the fact that because he, was one, he, because he was potentially associated with Jesus, something really bad could happen to him. But now he is standing in front of thousands of people, thousands of people who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he's going to lay it out for them straight. Check this out in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, which is pretty straightforward, right? Whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I mean, he's telling them the direct truth. He's unafraid to do it. Think about this. He's unafraid to stand before them and say, the man that you put on a cross is Lord and Messiah. And then I love this. A little while later, Peter heals a crippled man at the temple through Jesus, through, through God's power. And the, um, the religious leaders call, call Peter in. Now, now, when Peter preached that sermon I talked about a second ago at Pentecost, he got up and he, he gave this incredible sermon. The Bible tells us 3,000 new believers uh, uh, were added to the church that day. Fill this room up 
fill all these seats twice over, and that's the number of people who previously did not believe in Jesus Christ, who came to believe in Jesus Christ because of Peter's sermon. So imagine these religious leaders who thought that by killing Jesus, they were going to squash this and make it go away off the face of the earth, and now they find out that there's this huge group of people who now believe in Jesus Christ. And now they've got this Peter guy who has apparently healed this, healed this crippled person at the, at the temple. They've got to deal with him. So they call him in. And this is what they say to him. Check this out. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. They called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Well, if Peter is the same guy he was before, sitting around the fire, scared to death, concerned that something bad could happen to him, and they tell him, don't you ever teach or preach again in the name of Jesus, we expect uh, Peter to go, okay, whatever you say, right? But look at what he says. Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. He said, this boulder is rolling down the hill. And nothing's going to stop it. You want to talk about resolve. You want to talk about nerves of steel. You want to talk about being unmovable. I mean, here's a guy who really, really moved the needle. He went from being incredibly rockable to being rock solid. How does something like that happen? And how would it happen for you? Because this is what we're talking about, right? How do you, how do you personally move the needle from being rockable to being less rockable? Well, I think something huge happened in Peter's life, and I'll tell you this. I don't think it's that God gave him a new personality overnight. I think we find out in Luke and 1 Corinthians what happened. I'm going to read this to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. Jesus showed up and talked to Peter before he even saw the other disciples. And then check this out. Luke chapter 24, verse 33 corroborates this. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord really uh, has risen. He appeared to Peter. So we don't know all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and exactly how they unfolded and what he said. But what we do know is that Peter was right at the top of his appointment list. One of the first people he appeared to was Peter. I don't know what happened at that meeting. I don't know what Jesus said. Maybe he said something like he was going to say at the Great Commission where he said, I'm with you into the end of the age. Or maybe um, Jesus was going to say something like he had said previously when he said, don't be afraid of what man can do to you. I have no idea what was said. What I do know is this. I know that Peter watched Jesus die on the cross and he watched the worst possible thing happen that he could imagine. And then he saw Jesus come back to life. And when he saw Jesus, when he got face to face with Jesus, he realized that there was nothing on earth that could happen to him that God could not handle. Because what Jesus said, and this is what we learn later on in the New Testament when Paul says, because there is resurrection from the dead, there is nothing that we have to fear. Because basically what, what, what Paul is saying and what Peter was learning here is that when, when Jesus proved to us that death is not that big a deal to him, then there is nothing on the face of this planet that should have the ability to grab us by the scruff of the neck and make us be afraid. See, Peter didn't have a personality problem. He had a bully problem. You know what a bully does? A bully gets people to act against their best interests by threatening them with something. In all Peter's life, he was bullied by the worst thing that could happen. 
I don't know, maybe, maybe you're like me. I tend to inventory these things. What's the worst thing that could happen? And I tend to think about it, and I tend to file them away. What's the worst that could happen in my life? What's the worst that could happen in my family? What's the worst that could happen in my health? What's, what, what's the worst that could happen at, at, at work or to coworkers? Those sorts of things, they're all, always kind of in the back of my mind, and they create a network of fear that eventually creates kind of like a minefield in my life. I have all these triggers, little silly things that somebody can do or say or something that can happen that triggers those fears some within me. And I may not even be thinking about it uh, at the moment, but somehow those things are connected. And in that moment, that fear motivates me to get pushed from good Jonathan to bad Jonathan, and I begin to act out of character. And Peter had had this volatility because he was concerned about the worst thing that could happen. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you've experienced it where fear shows up in your life and it bullies you. But see, when, 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 when Peter got face-to-face with Jesus, I mean, in Revelation... God says, look, I'm the one who was dead and now I'm alive. I wonder if maybe that's what Jesus said to Peter. Hey, I'm the guy that you saw die on the cross, but look at me. Look at me, Peter. I'm here and I'm alive and I'm all right. It was like in that moment, it was like Peter was thinking, you know what? I've spent my life afraid of a beware of dog sign that was posted on a yard where apparently there was no dog. There's nothing to be afraid of. I can, I can just now, I can live my life. I can get out there and do what God has called me to do. And I can live to my full potential. And I can spend a lot more time on the good me side. And I can be who I want to be because at the end, God can handle anything that I happen to be afraid of. And the worst case scenario is not scary to the God that I serve. Peter knew what it was like at this point to live on the other side of fear. What's the first thing that we're going to talk about? How to make your boat less rockable? you got to learn to live on the other side of fear. Not to eliminate all fear in your life, but to allow God to transition you to the side where you recognize that God is still bigger than anything that you're afraid of. Romans 8.38 is a great verse. It, most of us know Romans 8.28. There's a verse that says, in all things God works for those of us who are called according to his purpose. But if you get a new Bible and you're highlighting Romans 8.28, make sure you skip down 10 verses and also highlight Romans 8.38 and 39 where the Bible says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Your translation may say below the earth, wherever that is. And indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like Paul saying, I'm doing my best to think about anything that might be fearful for you. I'm doing my best to think about anything that might be fear-provoking for me. And I'm just adding it to this list and I'm saying, none of those things is powerful enough to separate us from God. And it seemed to click for Peter and it changed his life forever. So where do we get traction in this for our lives? Look at this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where God says, For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Now that word spirit is very hard for us to translate because it really comes across over into English as air or, or, uh, or wind. Basically, we're going to look at this as the essence of how you are in the moment. So I'm going to call this mood or attitude. For God has not given us a mood or an attitude of fearfulness, or that's inspired by fearfulness, but one that's inspired by power, love, and sound judgment. So we, when we talk about what mood are you in, or how do you control your mood, or, or, or how, how do you find a way to have a stable mood, what God is saying is, I want your mood to be inspired by my power. I want your mood to be inspired by my love. I want your mood to be inspired by sound judgment. And he said, the thing that could tank that is in the moment that you allow your mood to be inspired by fear. 
You say, Jonathan, is fear really that powerful? Could it, could it really tank the way that I approach something? Well, let's see. I brought this beam here, and I owe an assist to um, Dallas Cowboys coach Jimmy Johnson for this illustration. But I want you to suppose that before, I, but before you could leave this room and go to lunch, I told you, you have to balance and walk across this, this beam. You can't, you can't fall off. At least once, you've got to be able to walk all the way across and not fall off. That's your task before you can leave here and go to lunch. How would you feel about that? Your heart get really racy, right? Maybe you get upset with me, get mad. Probably not. It's not that big a deal. I mean, even I can do it. If I can do it, anybody can, right? But what if then I was to say, no, wait a minute, you got it, you got it wrong. What I mean is, I want you to balance on this beam, but I want you to walk from here to here on this beam before you go to lunch. Can't leave here until you do that. How'd you feel about that? Heart's going thump, 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 right? Blood pressure's kind of skyrocketing, right? And you might get a little upset with me, and you'd have every right to. Well, can I ask you a question? What's changed? It's the same beam, isn't it? Balancing is the same task, isn't it? You know what's changed? What's changed is the worst that could happen. Because, see, if this beam is on the ground, the worst that could happen is you might stumble off and, you know, step down onto the ground, but then you'd be able to get back up and you'd try it again. Up here, the worst that could happen is you could break some bones, right? I, I've had people in every service go, oh, Jonathan, I thought you were going to get up there and walk across the beam. <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath, right? But uh, that's what's changed is the worst that could happen. So when we deal with fears in our life, that network of fears that underlies what's going on in our world, that causes us to be rockable, that causes us to get pushed across the line, that moves our R factor to where we find ourselves very volatile, it's because we're, we're concerned about what's the worst that could happen. And can I just encourage you to think about it. When you find yourself in a circumstance and you're up against it, and you're looking at that and thinking, man, something really bad could happen here, ask yourself, is it bigger than what God has the capacity to handle? We have some friends, my wife and I do, in, uh, in Oklahoma who uh, were members of the church that we were at before we came here. And they have a 21-year-old daughter who had a stroke a few weeks ago. And a stroke at 21 is pretty uncommon. And she had some major reconstructive surgery and, and uh, she's been through a lot of therapy and she's been holding her own for a while, but then two nights ago she had another stroke and it caused some very, very severe damage. Now the doctors are talking to her mom and dad with words like, if she makes it, and saying if she does make it, she's likely to have very permanent, significant brain damage. Their world's changing, and they have a lot of significant sources of fear in their life. So I recognize that may not be your situation, but there are going to be a lot of you in this room who have significant fear just like that family does. And for you, it feels like God has asked you to walk across a very high beam. You say, Jonathan, that's nothing. This thing is nothing compared to what I think God is asking me to walk right now. So you get up there, though, because you want to try this. You want to do it. And you take a step, and you, you start to get a little nervous, and you think, but what, but what if something bad happens to me? I mean, how do I know that I'm going to be able to get there? And God says to you, but I haven't given you the spirit of fear. I haven't given you this attitude of fearfulness. I've given you the attitude of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
So you think, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying. But then you walk a couple more steps and then you really get hung up because you think, but what if the worst happens? What if I die? Or what if somebody that I love dies? What, what if that happens? And then you remember that Jesus said, I hold the keys to death and hell. And basically what Jesus is saying, death can't lock you up. Because it's the, the moment that you leave this world, he said, I've got the keys. I'm just going to go unlock you, let you out. And then you're going to figure out what life is really all about because I'm gonna, you're going to be more alive when you leave this planet than you ever were here. You take a couple more steps and you think, but what about sabotage? What if somebody tries to take me out? What if somebody wants to harm me? What if somebody wants to to cause me pain and difficulty? And then you remember the apostle Paul says, but if God is for us, then who can be against us? And you keep taking a little step at a time and a little baby step at a time. And then eventually you get to the other side. And Jesus says to you, see, I told you you could make it. I told you you could make it. See, what's going to affect the rockability in your life is your capacity to trust that Jesus is bigger than what you're afraid of. We don't know a lot about how Peter died because, honestly, we don't have a lot about it in Scripture. We do have some writings about it by other authors contemporary to Peter's death. And what we, what we have is that Peter was crucified. And he was crucified for preaching about Jesus, by the way. And he told the men who were going to execute him that he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. So he asked them if they would hang him upside down when they crucified him. As far as I know, the only person we have a record of asking to be crucified by his feet. Now we know that at Jesus' cross, at Jesus' execution, there was a soldier who stood off to the side and said, surely this was the Son of God. And we don't have any record of anything like that that happens at Peter's crucifixion. But I've got just enough of an imagination to think Wouldn't it be cool if one of those soldiers stood off to the side and said, man, that guy's a rock. Jesus was right. Jesus said, your name is Simon. You're rockable. You're you're back and forth. You've got a lot of volatility in your life, but you're going to be called a rock because that's what you have the potential to be. And when you're on the other side of fear, man, there's going to be no stopping you. How about you? Isn't it true that if you, could, if you could get this in your groundwater, if you could get this in your DNA, and you could live on the other side of fear, just imagine how there would be no stopping you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you've given us the capacity to live a life with peace and calm, even in the middle of life's uncertainties and ups and downs. And I pray that you would superintend these next couple of moments. I know we're in overtime, but I'm asking you to keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're in this room and you say, you know what, Jonathan? I'm walking the beam right now in a huge way. But I don't have a relationship with Jesus and you have no idea how frightening this is. You have no idea how, how intimidated I am because I don't have a relationship with Jesus as I'm going through this. Well, can I just tell you that he's invited you and he's done everything that's necessary. He's, he's waiting with open arms and he's saying, I'm gonna be there for you. So would you consider doing this? Would you consider calling out to Jesus and saying, I wanna have a relationship with you? I'm gonna say the words to a very simple prayer that just says that. And you don't need to say this out loud. You can just say this silently in your heart to God and it'll be settled once and for all. Ready, let's do this. Dear Jesus, I love you. I thank you for dying for me and for choosing to love me. In this moment, I ask for forgiveness and I ask you to make me God's child. Thank you for your free gift of heaven. I place my trust and faith 
completely in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody look this way. Would you just for a minute? If you just prayed that prayer, we, we'd like to help you get started in your new relationship with God. So do us a favor. Take that talk to us card that you got. Check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ. Take it to guest services. They've got a packet they'd like to give you before you leave. All right? Thank you so much for being here with us this week. We'll see you next week.